Well, please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll continue our study in this uh, precious epistle. We are now uh, you know, definitely past the halfway point where the closing line, the finish line, is in our sight, and we have just a few more verses before we conclude our study. And uh, our study is concentrated on verses 10 and 11, but I would like to read uh, the whole chapter just to give, again, a sense of the context of what we are studying in verses 10 and 11. So we will begin our reading in chapter 3, verse 1, and we'll conclude our reading in verse 17. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all, as well as that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I read an article a few years ago by Don Whitney titled, The Almost Inevitable Ruin of Every Minister and How to Avoid It. I was so struck by this article, I posted on our church uh, pastor's corner a few years ago. I emailed this article out to every pastor I knew. And one of the pastor's fellowships that I am part of, I emailed it to them and we spent several hours discussing this article. I want to begin our time reading this article to you because, not the whole article, the first few pages, uh, because it is so pertinent to our study this morning. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, I believe um, that was Paul's heart as well. The ruin of many ministers. He had saw, seen it firsthand. And his concern 
would be that Timothy would not ruin himself as well as a minister of Christ. The article begins, Almost everyone knows someone who used to be in the ministry. Almost everyone knows someone who shouldn't be in the ministry. Almost every minister knows another minister, if not several, he does not want to be like. The sad news for ministers is that regardless of your age, education, or experience, it is almost inevitable that you will become the kind of minister you do not want to be. A Southern Baptist seminary did a study in the late 1990s showed that for every 20 men who entered the ministry, by the time those men reached age 65, only one is continuing to serve Christ. Despite all the commitments with which they began the race, despite all the investments of time and money to prepare, despite all the years of spent in service, despite the cost of retooling and redirecting their lives, nearly all will leave the ministry, some for health reasons, some because they had misread the call of God, but many because they have washed out in their private lives because they have ruined themselves, they have shipwrecked their faith out of sheer frustration and even failure. And if you haven't given serious thought to leaving the ministry, you haven't been in it very long. Despite that no one goes into the ministry to be a casualty, the ruin of almost every minister, it seems, is inevitable. For in addition to the high percentage of those who leave the ministry, sometimes it appears that of those who do stay in the ministry, many of them have been ruined in other ways. They may get ruined by money, either by the desire for it or the lack of it. They make far too many choices based upon getting more money, or else they smolder in their attitude toward their church because they don't get paid enough. They may get ruined by sex. I have a Southern Baptist publication in my files which says that 25 to 35% of ministers are involved in inappropriate sexual behavior at some level. They may get ruined by power. They become authoritarian. They may not have even started out this way. Perhaps they got that way because they were so faithful in one place of ministry for so long and the sin came upon them gradually. Or maybe they discovered that they enjoyed denominational work, but after a while they began serving their own political appetites more than Christ. They may get ruined by pride. The greater the influence God gives them, the greater they become in their own sight, and the more they believe they deserve the influence. But pride may be the sin that both God and men hate most, Regardless of their knowledge or abilities, they aren't loved or admired. They may get the admiration of the ignorant or the undiscerning or those who want to piggyback on the power of such men, but they will not get it from the godly. They may get ruined by cynicism. When they spend a great deal of time around ministers like these, ministers who have been ruined to some degree by money, sex, power, or pride, no wonder many get cynical. In addition, when you deal week in and week out with people who claim to be Christians but don't act like it, 
when those who are supposed to be God's people talk about you and treat you worse than those in the world do, when you've ministered for years and you see little apparent fruit in the lives of those you've given your life for, it's easy to become cynical. And then no one's testimony thrills you anymore. No book motivates you. No sermon moves you. And others may get ruined by success. They become CEOs, not shepherds. They become managers, not ministers. Their model is business with its emphasis on numbers, units, products, marketing, and customers rather than a family with its emphasis on love, relationships, new births, and maturity. Christian author Os Guinness quotes a Japanese businessman who said, Whenever I meet a Buddhist leader, I meet a holy man. Whenever I meet a Christian leader, I meet a manager. In some cases, the ruin, in some cases, ruin results in men leaving the ministry, yet in many instances, they remain. But even then, they become something you don't want to become. This is not a modern day phenomenon. This has been always the case from the inception of the Christian ministry. This is one of the main reasons why Paul wrote the pastoral epistles to Titus and to his son of the faith, Timothy. In Titus, he warned him in chapter 1, 10 and 11. He described many ministers, many ministers as rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, teaching things they ought not, but they're teaching it for sordid gain. In verse 16 of that same chapter, Paul warned Titus. He warned them of ministers who profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, worthless for any good deed. In 1 Timothy chapter 1.16, Paul spoke of ministers who had turned aside to fruitless discussions. In verse 19, about some who had suffered shipwreck in regards to their faith. Chapter 4, verse 12, he warned of ministers filled with hypocrisy, whose consciences are seared as with a branding iron. He told in chapter 6, verse 4, to watch out for ministers who are conceited and they understand nothing. They have a morbid interest in controversies and disputing about words. And they are filled with envy and strife, abusive language and evil suspicions. In chapter 6, verse 5, Paul warned Timothy about ministers who are in the ministry for money. They're prostituting God's word for base gain, for sordid gain. And then in our book that we're studying, Paul repeatedly warned Timothy of such ministers. He spoke of them in verse 15 of chapter 1, two ministers who had turned away from Paul. In chapter 2, 16 and 18 of ministers whose talk spread like gangrene. They have gone astray from the truth. And in chapter 3, we studied this a few weeks ago. And these uh, adjectives here describe not just false believers, 
of false ministers, Christian leaders, professing leaders who have ruined their faith and their ministry and ruining God's church. This is Paul's concern. And in chapter, t- chapter 3, verse 10, he contrasts Timothy with the previous description of these false teachers. You, however, so Paul is speaking to Timothy. He doesn't want Timothy to experience ruin. He doesn't want Timothy to go astray and shipwreck his faith and depart from sound doctrine and sound life that he had modeled for him. This is um, Paul's concern because Paul is well aware he's in a dungeon. Nero has began his uh, program of persecuting Christians. Christians are being martyred and leaders are being threatened and killed left and right. He knows as an aged apostle, his time is coming to an end and he will now pass the baton to Timothy. And his concern for Timothy is that Timothy would be faithful. Timothy would not experience ruin in his life and in his ministry. That is the heart behind this passage. So he tells Timothy, and he's speaking to you, singular to Timothy, and in that way speaking to church leaders. So our study really focuses to church leaders, particularly to pastors and elders. He's speaking to us. And he tells Timothy, you have followed, and he lists seven qualities. And the Greek word followed is very uh, specific. It's not like mindless following. It's not following from a distance. It's the idea of an apprentice, idea of a a, a doctor in training, a resident who follows an experienced medical doctor and observes and listens and learns, studies, it's that, that idea, you have followed me, you have learned from me, you have seen me. And he's telling Timothy to continue in what you have learned. And uh, we'll close with this next week, and I'm going to just get a little ahead of myself. And he's pointing Timothy to the Word of God. Because Paul, Timothy might say, but you're going to die, you're going to leave me. How can I continue in the ministry without you by my side? With you, without you setting an example for me, giving me a pattern to follow, who will train me to godliness, train me to be a good pastor? Paul points and directs Timothy and to all of us to the Word of God, the all-sufficient Word of God that gives wisdom for salvation and gives instruction for sanctification and also training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. Therefore, um, we don't really, in a sense, need uh, the Apostle Paul living the Christian life before us. We don't need um, to know John Piper personally to grow in Christ, or John MacArthur, or or Elder Bob. That's a cherry on top. Be good, right? It'd be a positive thing. But with the Word of God, we have everything we need for salvation, for the Christian life, and for ministry. We, we needed Apostle Paul's example because the Scriptures wasn't 
finished yet, it will still be being written. So in that inter- intervening time, Apostle Paul taught and set the example. But now that we have the completed canon of the scriptures, we have everything we need in the Word of God. So in this transition, we see Paul's heart and his burden as concern for Timothy. And he's passing this on to, 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 to Timothy, and he's pointing him to the Word of God. So two weeks ago, we looked at the first three qualities that Timothy saw, observed, investigated, made his own, and, 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 and continued in. The first one is, you have followed my teaching. Uh, the word there, didaskalio, is doctrine. You have followed my instruction. So what was uh, Paul's instruction? What was Paul's teaching? It was that singular teaching that um, revolutionized the world. It was that one teaching that caused all the persecutions that Paul faced. It was what causes, caused Paul to be in prison as he's writing this letter. Paul would not flinch. He would not compromise. He would not give an inch on this doctrine that man is justified before a thrice holy God through faith alone and not by works. That all our works gain us nothing in standing before a perfectly righteous and holy God. That by works it is impossible to be righteous before God, to be a, to please God, to, ac- to be accepted by God, to be approved by God. The only way is the one that God has provided through His Son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. It is the cross. And by anyone who has a mustard seed of faith in that cross is immediately imputed with the complete, perfect righteousness of God's own Son. And in that moment, he or she is adopted into God's family, perfectly righteous, perfectly approved, perfectly pleasing to the Lord. And at that moment, the believer considers all their works as rubbish compared to the surpassing glory of knowing Jesus Christ. That was all Paul's doctrine. Gospel of free grace. Gospel of sovereign grace. Gospel of God's mercy through Jesus Christ. That encapsulates, that sums up Paul's didaskalia. Timothy, you know, many men started out with grace, and they went towards works. They went towards circumcision. They went towards adding works to the Christian faith. And they shipwrecked their faith. They departed. They turned away from Paul. In our legalism, in our effort to establish our own righteousness, in our pride, we want some, some boast before God. They became angry at Paul. They turned away from this doctrine. But Timothy didn't. Timothy, by the grace of God, saw the beauty of the gospel and he believed it, received it, and made it his own. And Paul is telling him, continue in it. Continue in my teaching. The second is uh, my conduct, right? Right doctrine, right life. You have seen my conduct, my behavior in light of the gospel. Now, this is uh, so amazing. 
uh, people warned, the critics warned Paul, you, you believe this doctrine, you're going to become an immoral man. You're going to become an, a, a, a wicked, self-centered, licentious. Man, you, you believe in freedom. You preach freedom. Not only will your life be chaos, you're going to promote chaos in everyone that believes this message. The message of Paul was where sin abounds, grace superabounds. Their retort is, Paul, what's going to happen is where grace abounds, sin will superabound. And it will start with you. Right? You'll be the most self-centered, right? immoral, prideful, egotistical man in all the world because you believe in freedom through the gospel. And every follower of yours will become you know, mediocre, complacent, right? Christian will live by freedom and not by obedience to Christ. And Paul was an example. The exact opposite happened. That's why it's such, it's such a gospel is foolishness. It doesn't make sense. Right? It doesn't make sense. The exact opposite happened of what the critics predicted. For Paul... Christ's love compelled him. It constrained him, 2 Corinthians 5.14, to no longer live for himself, but live for Christ who died and was raised again. Now, there was no limit to his obedience. As a Pharisee, he was in control of his religion, and he dictated to God what he will do for God, based upon his own righteous standing. But as a sinner saved by grace, there was no limit to what God can ask of him. And because of grace that was in him, there was no limit to what Paul wanted to do. There was no limit to his lordship. No limit to his discipleship. No limit to pleasing Christ. To the point where he's in prison and he's filled with joy. He thanks God. He's not complaining, right? He's not filled with anger. Talked to a sister who came to Christ recently and she was a Buddhist and she was saying I want to be a faithful Buddhist so that I'll be blessed and I would be a, a, a great testimony for Buddhism see if you're a good Buddhist you're blessed that's why you should all follow be a Buddhist as well and she said it, it didn't happen my life was filled with hardships and trials and suffering and that broke my heart to the gospel a legalist after obeying God ends up in prison, will feel the same thing. Will feel anger towards God. Would feel self-pity and anger towards others, anger towards life. Because I obeyed God, why am I treated thus? But for a Christian who's based on grace, in a prison cell like Paul, there's joy. There is uh, immeasurable joy. Because, uh, you know, the, the gospel teaches us Jesus is all we need, right? If we have Jesus, we have everything we need right, for joy. And so the exact opposite happened. Even Paul is martyred with joy. And every believer who follows Paul with this teaching, their life is the same, where they live for Christ. Their life is marked by anything close to complacency or 
mediocrity. Their lives are marked by uh, zeal, spiritual fervency, desire for the glory of God, for intercessory prayer, evangelism missions here and throughout the world. And church history validates this. Revivals always came by way of gospel preaching. Revival never occurred via legalism. Revival never occurred through preaching the law. No one got excited. Yeah, more law. Man, revival in my heart. My heart's so melted by more rules and regulations and more stipulations. I love the fine print. That never happened in the history of the church. It's always when Christians understood grace and non-believers heard the true gospel, revival broke out. The third thing that Timothy saw and followed was Paul's aim in life. So when you see the gospel, when you believe the gospel, nothing else matters. Your eyes are open. You see your purpose. You see your ultimate goal. It's not to make ends meet. It's not to check off. It's not your work or family or children. All these things are good and well. God gives them to us as gifts. We enjoy it. We all enjoy God's gifts, but Christians, we enjoy it to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10.31. We don't lose ourselves in the gifts that God gives to us. We don't lose ourselves in in, in marriage or children or homes or vacations. We enjoy these things, but we lose ourselves in Christ, and we enjoy them for the glory of God. And we make the main thing the main thing, the gospel of Christ. So much so, Paul said, I consider my life worth nothing to me. Only, my, only if I may finish a task, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. That was Paul's all-consuming aim in life. And he died fulfilling it. And Timothy saw it, and he bought in, and he was continuing. And uh, you know, that's what Paul's ministry, and I, two weeks ago I shared this with first service, and I didn't share it with second service, during your character discussions, there must have been some confusion because I left this part about logos, uh, ethos, and pathos, right? So that was what Paul was doing. Credibility and ministry and influence is all about these three components. Logos is truth. Ethos is character. Pathos is passion, intensity, desire. Paul had all of those in the first three. He had the gospel. He had gospel life gospel character that brought integrity to the gospel of Christ and he brought his own intensity, his own zeal by making it his aim. The next four, Paul continues, the fourth one is you have seen my faithfulness. My faithfulness. Now the Greek word here is pistis and you can translate it two ways, either faith or faithfulness and it is the context that determines which, which meeting we, we decide upon. And the context here, faithfulness, is um, much more uh, uh, credible. What is faithfulness? It's uh, dependability, loyalty, stability, steadfastness in affection or allegiance, firm adherence to promises, to observance, Paul was a faithful man, publicly and privately. Paul was given the stewardship of the gospel 
He did not compromise. He did not waver. He was steadfast in the stewardship that God had entrusted to him, the gospel of God's grace. And he didn't uh, vindicate himself. He didn't declare this himself. In 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5, he says, I don't even judge myself. The Lord will judge me. But as far as I know, with a clear conscience, I've been faithful to what God has given to me to believe the gospel, to live in the gospel, to preach the gospel. This is a quality that uh, Paul looked for in other men, faithfulness. He didn't look for like, uh, you know, what I look for, like humor. He didn't look for that. Uh, he didn't look for their athletic skills, right? You know, he didn't look at their personality or anything else. One of the things he mentions over and over again is uh, faithfulness. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4.17, that's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child. Ephesians 6.21, talking about Tychicus, the beloved and faithful minister. Colossians 1.7, Epaphras a faithful minister. In 2 Timothy 2.2, Timothy, what you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to pistis men, faithful men, reliable men. I think we see one of the qualities of a spiritual leader. He is a, a faithful, faithful man, steadfast, loyal, diligent, a stable man. He's not wavering. He's not blown and tossed by the wind. He is, uh, he embodies 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The next one is surprising. Um, I'm going to attempt this Greek word here. Macrothymia, that's the Greek word for patience. Now, there are two Greek words for patience, hupomone and macrothymia. Hupomone, you can translate it perseverance, endurance, or patience, but always has to do with things or situations. I, I hupomone through studying for the SAT. Lindsay's right here, so, right? You endure through SAT classes, right? You know, Derek's here. You hupomone through training for freshman football. You hupomone through serving in Pebbles ministry, right? It's always things or situations. Macrothymia is patience always with people, right? So I have macrothymia to you and you macrothymia to me, right? We're patient with each other, always with people. And that's what Paul's pointing to. Paul says, you know my patience with people. I mean, uh, you know, I talk to everyone here, but I talk to parents, and you'll say, patience is the, one of the hardest things in the world. Right? And we talk to ministers here, or care group leaders, right? Being patient with people. Is the, and we talk to everyone who drives in Southern California traffic in the rain this past week. And we'll tell you, the patience is one of the most difficult things, right? Patient with pe- poor drivers, right? Um, Paul, says, Timothy, you've seen my patience with people. And we see glimpses of this 
in Paul's uh, writing to the Corinthians, how he carefully, clearly, patiently shepherds them, teaches them, prays for them, warns them, labors for them. You see this patient, tender shepherding of Paul in his life. Another quality that Timothy embodied, another quality that uh, ministers of Christ are to follow, patience with God's people. Where do we... uh, Where do we learn this from? We learn this from the gospel of Christ. I I believe that's where Paul learned it. Because in the gospel, we discover the outrageous patience of God with his people. You studied last week here, and Pastor Dan stood in his pulpit and spoke about Hosea and Gomer. And that depicts his relationship with us. Now we think, you know, we, we've seen tough marriages. We think we're in difficult marriages. God's in a marriage from hell. He's married to us. The most unfaithful people whose hearts are always going astray from God. You see through Hosea, God's outrageous faithfulness. Unreasonable. Implausible. It almost angers us. If we heard that our friend did that, we had a friend named Hosea, right? And he was that forgiving to his wife, we would be incredulous. We would say, what are you doing? She is making a mockery of you, right? It's scandalous. Don't you have any modicum of self-respect? How can you allow her to trample upon you again and again? Have some self-respect. Divorce her immediately. But through that illustration, we see God's incredible love and patience. And we see it in Jonah as well. That's why Jonah's response is our response. Because he is so angered at God's compassion, God's patience and love. God should have destroyed Nineveh generations ago. God, these people do not deserve your mercy. You should have wiped them off from the face of this earth. They're wicked people. How can you be so patient Jonah is so angry, he wants to die. He wants to die, his life to end, because he's so filled with anger. Instead of God's uh, patience being uh, melting Jonah's heart, it hardens his heart. And that's the case with us. Not for Paul. He saw God's patience toward him, who was, he was the chief of sinners. He saw God's Perfect patience toward him. So he understood the gospel. And so when we are impatient with people at that moment, at that instant, we have lost sight of the gospel. We've lost sight of grace. We've we've infused our self-righteousness, our legalism, our own works in that formula. And that impatience is due to our unbelief. Patience in our Paul's life was the direct result of grace. That's what Paul is calling Timothy to, and that is what it's Paul, the scripture is calling us to. That we will abound in patience toward our spouse, toward our children, toward people 
that we are caring for. Inexhaustible patience. So much so, it would cause outrage. Right? It would cause people to be angry because we're so patient. If that is the case, then the gospel is being exalted and highlighted. The sixth one is uh, Paul's love. Agape love. And this is uh, horizontal, not vertical. I believe in the context here, Paul is talking about his ministry to people. And Timothy saw Paul's love where Paul was ministering not just with his head, not just with his hands, but with his heart. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. It is the first response of receiving love from God. It is one where it is the chief virtue of the Christian. It sums up and fulfills the law. Against it there is no law. It is the first fruit of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5.22. It is the first evidence of genuine conversion, sincere brotherly love. And Timothy saw firsthand of his... uh, Love towards fellow Christians. Love towards people in the church whom he was ministering to. First Corinthians 13 says, Without this, it nullifies all ministry. It nullifies all that we do as Christians. Whatever we do, preaching, right, service, leading, serving, it nullifies it all if we're not motivated by love. Of the three, faith, hope, and love, Paul said the greatest is love. Paul ministered with tender affection for his people. And that is what Timothy saw and followed, and he's continuing him in. That is what he's calling us as well. And then the final one is uh, hupomone here. Hupomone... My ESV says steadfastness. Other versions says perseverance, endurance. You've seen my endurance. And what did Paul endure? He endured so many things, but he mentions in verse 11, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, which persecutions I endured. These were towns near where Timothy's from. And these are early in Paul's ministry. So Paul could have mentioned his most recent sufferings and persecutions or his current persecutions, but I don't know why, but he mentions the earliest ones. And I, I suppose it's because Timothy was, was well aware, of, had first-hand knowledge of these persecutions. So Timothy knew them intimately. So I'll just it, it's in Acts 13 all the way to 16. You know, read them, consider them. It'll, it'll help you. It, it helps me to consider Paul's sufferings for the gospel. He went to uh, first Antioch and Pisidia. This is different Antioch than the one where in Acts 15, Gentiles came to Christ. That Antioch in Syria is, is, is north of Jerusalem. This is a smaller Antioch uh, near Ephesus, northwest. And when he went there, uh, the Jews were angry. They were filled with jealousy. They began to revile Paul when he had heard of the threats that they made against the converts of Paul 
Paul fled, not for his sake. He didn't flee Antioch fearing for his own life. To protect young Christians, he fled. He then fled to uh, Iconium, preached the gospel there at the synagogue. And uh, the Jews from Antioch followed after him. And he fled again. In Acts 14, a great revival occurred in, in Lystra. Paul was speaking and there was a man, verse 8 of Acts 14, who could not use his feet. Paul had the gift of healing. He knew the mind of God. He knew the will of God. He said to that man, stand upright on your feet. At that moment, he sprang up and began walking. A revival broke out. Many came to faith. But these Jews from Antioch got more people from Iconium. They sprang upon Paul here in Lystra. They dragged Paul out of the city and they stoned him to death. They, 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 they martyred him. And they dragged him out of the city and left him for dead. They thought he was dead. The amazing thing was, uh, in verse 20, disciples gathered around him. Paul rose up, dusted off his clothes, and he went back into the city to preach the gospel. He says, uh, this is what I, hupomone, this is what I endured. My persecutions and my sufferings. And then he adds this important qualifier. Paul adds a note of triumph. But the Lord rescued me from them all. Through my, he delivered me. He rescued me. Here we are. You know, Paul doesn't give any credit to himself. He's not saying, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a weak man. You know, I'm not a wimp. I don't cower. I'm strong in my resolve. No, he, he gives all, he gives all glory to God. I was able to continue because the Lord rescued me. How did the Lord rescue him? Senses, he rescued him from death. But more than that, Paul rescued him in his heart. Where he was able to have joy, able to continue in the ministry, not lose his heart. He was able to continue to stand for the gospel of God's grace. The Lord rescued me. And then in verse 12, uh, in verse 11 and 12, he opens it up to everyone. He contrasts uh, evil people in verse 13, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceived and being deceived. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecution, the Christian faith, is not for a subgroup of Christians. It's for all Christians. Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, just because I die doesn't mean persecution is going to end. It's going to continue. And, and after you die, persecution is not the end. It's going to continue. In fact, all believers should anticipate this 
difficulty. That everyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. The key qualifier there is live a godly life. If you don't want to live a godly life, just be a professor, right? But not bring the gospel, bear on your life. Just privately believe in your heart. There will be no persecution. There will be no suffering. You'll be a friend of this world and the world will be a friend to you. But for those who truly believe, desire to live out the Christian life, persecution is certain to all believers. The source of Paul's persecution was his commitment to the gospel, salvation by grace. How do we do this? That's next week. Persecution is going to continue. Evil men, imposters, will go from bad to worse, being deceived and deceiving others. Timothy's heart is, without the Apostle Paul, how can I continue in the ministry? Paul, therefore, points Timothy to the Word of God, which gives wisdom for salvation, but not just for salvation, and not just for the Christian life, but for, for Christian ministry, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That is... Uh, the source and means of God's grace to us, that we don't have the Apostle Paul here with us, discipling us, setting the example for us, training us, but now we have the Word of God in which we have confidence. We'll continue our study next week. If you bow your heads and close your eyes, with Bibles open, pen in hand, I want to ask you just to respond to God's word in light of what we have studied. Do you see uh, if the beauty of Paul's life imparted to you? Are you following from a distance or are you investigating? Are you being an apprentice to the scriptures, seeking to make it your own? Have you considered Paul's teaching, his conduct, his aim in life, his faithfulness, his patience, his love, and his endurance through suffering? Gospel alone makes these possible. Would you now turn to Christ Ask God to grant you repentance. Repentance, turning from unbelief to belief. Turning to trusting in Christ that these might be increasing measure in your life. Lord, we do uh, thank you for the beautiful display of your grace in our dear brother, dear friend, Apostle's life. We see firsthand uh, what grace does in a, a man who has just faith in you, who trusts you, who believes in you. Lord, we 
we pray that these qualities would be in our lives as well. Lord, help us to follow close to the scriptures. Lord, help us to have our eyes opened and our hearts soft to the teachings and, and examples that are found in the Word of God so that we might have these qualities in growing measure in our lives so that we'll be ready for every good work and so that when and persecution comes to us, or we will testify as well with joy that you are, you have rescued us, you have delivered us, and therefore we stand. Lord, we thank you for this uh, choice portion of the scriptures. May it uh, inspire us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.